0: Hi, I'm John Atack, and this is my my special guest, Jolene Armstrong.
1: Yes. Hi. Hi. And
0: <laughs> you were in, involved with the the Church of the Latter Day Saints, is that that right? Or
1: yes, yes. Uh, until recently, commonly known as the Mormons. Um, now they've gone back to the original title in a rebranding effort. You know that, the, yeah, mm. the, the long title, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. So, <laughs> yeah.
0: And <clears throat> were you born into to the, the Mormon faith?
1: I was, I was. So um, my, and both of my parents, their entire families were in the faith as well. I think my mom was a couple of generations. Um, I've heard stories of my dad's family all joining at the same time when he was a teenager before he married my mother. And I don't know if that, him marrying her had something to do with that, but. Um, they both lived in Utah, which is kind of Mormon Mecca <laughs> in the US. So um that I'm sure had something to do with it as well.
0: I was surprised to I only found this out recently, but you know, I'm not I'm not American, so American history is not my prime subject. But that yeah. Brigham Young moved the Mormons to Utah because it was part of Mexico.
1: Um, yeah, I guess it may have been, and honestly, I don't know the full history there either. I do know. What Mormons are taught is that there was just tons of persecution, um, against the Mormons back, you know, in, in New York and in the Midwest where they were, and they just kept moving further West. They got to this place that, um, became Utah and they're like, okay, this is it. And so they did, de- they developed it. That's mm. yeah. And it, the Utah still, Utah government has a huge Mormon influence, um, mm. It's it's yeah a Mormon state basically I guess I could say that
0: <laughs> yeah and well tell me something about what it was like being a child involved with this you know you had to go to ceremonies of some kind and
1: yeah for those who are less experienced with Mormonism it is I can I can give you kind of kind of an experience when I was growing up Mormonism was you know three hours on Sunday. And then there were meetings before and after if you had any, you know, you were involved in any other kind of um, kind of subgroups or organizations, people who taught classes or whatever would meet before or after the leaderships of that particular um, group would meet before or after whatever. So three hours on Sunday, Monday nights were family home evening. So it was just with your family in your home nobody else allowed you just get together learn a lesson whatever and then um wednesday nights and thursday nights were um different group nights so youth group the young men and young women would have activities and the relief societies the women's organization they would have activities um often on one of those nights as well um and then we're kind of on our own the other nights. Every other week, the youth would get together for a, um, a st- what they called stake dances. So a stake is just a, a group of people in a certain area. There are stakes all over the place. So um, so lots of youth activities there for because you're supposed to just stay friends with people who are in the church, or if you're friends with people outside of the church, kind of the goal is to get them to join so lots of opportunities for that <laughs> so then there were things you know summer camps and things like that that we went to as well um but the the weekly stuff that was really that was really it
0: mm. I, yeah. I lived in East Grinstead which of course is the headquarters of Scientology and mm-hmm. and it's about five miles away from the headquarters of uh, the Mormons oh and um I actually came to know the bishop um, fairly briefly, but his daughter was at school with my daughter; they were both very young. And um, it, I think every 17 years, the um, <clears throat> church would be rededicated. And of course, okay. it's got, you know, it looks from the outside; it looks like a fairly conventional Christian church. But when you get inside, it, it's lots of little rooms and um, a, a great big um, thing surrounded by. Balls, where where everybody you know they went through all of the parish registers of in the UK, and so so that everybody could go to the Mormon heaven afterwards, which is a, a strange oh, yeah. thought, but it was very good for our records because it actually put a record together of everything. Um, mm. of but the chap I went with was a, a kind of well it actually turned out he was a spy for Scientology but that's another story altogether interesting. (laughs) told me he'd been involved with the Mormons and that
2: um,
0: he really wanted to go back and so I phoned the bishop up and I said look there's this chap and and he'd really like to come back and he said but he's been involved with Scientology I said yes he said we won't have anybody that's been involved with Scientology this idea that that means you're damned forever
1: wow Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, and and also not so sorry to hear that, just because uh, it's also it's pretty damaging. So it's maybe not terrible to stay away.
0: (laughs) I guess. I think you know once people have have had Scientology, they don't deserve anything else horrible happening to
1: them. Right. Exactly. Just, just it's okay. Just stay away. (laughs) We, I mean, we can relay information those of us who have been there, but. I was actually never, um, I, I went, I think you're describing, um, a temple, a Mormon temple. Um, and that those experiences in the temple are really reserved. Not even every Mormon gets to go into the temple. So that may be, um, helpful for your, for your friend as well. So it's, uh, Mormons have to do specific things in order to be allowed to enter the temple. Um, they have to attend all of their meetings. They have to live the word of wisdom. So, you know, we can't eat or drink specific things, those kinds of things. Um, what are
0: you not allowed to eat if you're a Mormon? Um,
1: oh, well, I alcohol guess. Alcohol is
0: forget- forbidden. Yeah.
1: You? Alcohol, coffee, tea. They can't drink any of that. Um, and then there's, so I guess foods, it's just more general. You should mm-hmm. eat healthily. Um, you shouldn't eat anything that ha- that is mind altering or things like that. So the the really specific restrictions are more on the i guess the drinks really. So mm. caffeine although Mormons have um invested in I think Coca-Cola <laughs> different yeah but yeah Mormons are really not supposed to drink caffeine they're not supposed to drink anything or eat anything that would alter their state of mind.
0: Okay. So I, I saw a very good documentary years ago called "Meet the Mormons," um, mm-hmm. which was just fly on the wall, and they they just followed um, some a young Mormon missionary. Mm-hmm. And um, if I remember rightly, and it really it went very badly for the Mormons. They really did not look good because there was somebody <laughs> spying all the time to make sure that the camera crew didn't get anything. And it, and it there was no voiceover. You just saw what was said and it put you off completely. Um, but it, is it? am I remembering right that the missionaries will be teenagers who are sent away from their families for, is it a period of two years? Um,
1: Typically, yeah, the, the men, young men at 19 will go for two years. Young women wait a couple of years and go for sometimes a shorter period of time. Um, And that's only if they haven't gotten married and started a family yet, but the men definitely 19 for two years.
0: Okay. And, And during that time, this documentary led me to believe they do not communicate with their families.
1: The whole time i was growing up and until recently i'm not sure because i've been out of the mormon church for a while um so i don't have exact time frames of when this has changed but um when i was in certainly when my brother served his mission there yeah they he was able to communicate with us um i think on mother's day he could call my mother maybe christmas day if i remember correctly and then if he needed something Um, that was communicated either by letter or his mission president or one of his leaders would let us know. Like he kept getting his bike stolen. (laughs) He had to ride a bike. And so he went through a number of bikes that my parents had to pay to replace. (laughs) And so, yeah, uh, things like that were communicated, like if he needed something or if he, I I know he got um, sick during that time and that he may have been able to call when he was sick gosh that wasn't so long ago mm. uh, I barely remember but mm. yeah typically they weren't now more recently now they are able to get on social media and communication has been increased and I think that largely was because of the mental health issues that were happening during you know having these boys separated from their families and put into this situation for two years at a, at a a time when you need your family's support for crying out loud. So I think that that has started to change, thankfully.
0: That's good. Yeah. How long ago did you leave?
1: So I I have a little bit of a different experience in Mormonism than, than many because it never really resonated with me, even as a little girl. It never... One of my early memories, so this is a long way of answering your question. I hope that's okay.
2: Absolutely.
1: Yes. Yeah. One of my early memories um, was, happened inside a a Mormon church. And I remember that there were heater vents along the floors of the church. And so I would kind of stand my feet on either side of that heater vent and let it blow my dress out, you know, and I'm looking at my dress. (laughs) Yes. So I look at my dress and I'm just thinking, um, I wonder if all the adults are just lying to all the kids. Like, I mm. wonder if that's, and it just, that kind of just stuck with me. And I didn't, um, the things that I heard even as a kid were like, really? Mm. And it's still that way. And I think maybe that's a little, I've, I've benefited from that. It's been a little protection for me because, well, on one hand, I never really fit in there and I was never really trusted in the, I felt like I was never trusted in kind of Mormon circles. Mm-hmm. I was always just a little bit, you know, here are the Mormons and here's Jolene a little bit. Uh, but on the other hand, I've seen and heard so many stories of so many who like fully believed and spent their lives terrified about which level of heaven they were not going to make it to and all of that. And I just think I was spared all of that. So, mm-hmm. um, So to answer your question, as soon as I left my parents' home, I think I really started separating myself, but it was a slow, long, slow separation. And there were times when I started having children where I thought, okay, well, I'll go back to church to have a structure for my children. And then I would see things and hear things and just, okay, no, this is not the structure I want for my children. And so it was, it was a slow process, but it was through my... Mid 20s, early to mid 20s, that um, I really left. Now, my family, a few of the others in my family, my siblings have left as well over time and in different ways. My parents and part of my siblings are still very actively involved in the church. So I'm still, I still have that kind of um, through my family, some. Um, attachment I guess to the church a little bit but it's really arm's length (laughs) so so I hear things second and third hand but
0: and and are are you your parents and allowed to communicate with you or or are there reservations about that are there restrictions
1: yeah so you know in thinking um it may be easiest to compare how Mormonism handles this to how Scientology for example, handles, so Scientology has fair game, right? Even like Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses um, True, yeah. practice shunning and it's written and it's a policy and this is what you do and you have to do this. Mormonism is more, um, it's more like a whisper campaign, I think is the best way I could describe it. It's, you know, you just know, growing up in Mormonism and I would I guess I would like to talk to somebody who joins later on like how they how mm. they get it like you, how you're supposed to act because it's not written anywhere but you know they're just if they if they had the truth and they left you just it's it's a little dangerous you just don't want to oh they're you know she's inactive he's inactive and you know what that means mm. right and so there's that so they're not told don't don't talk to a family member who's left, but it's oh they've left, and truly Mormonism believes because when you you know after after we die we go into one of the three levels of heaven. Um, if your family member doesn't join you in that level of heaven, you're never going to see them again. And one of the huge draws of Mormonism is we'll be together after we die. And how dare this person leave? and ruin all of that for, for me as a parent, for me as a sibling, like you've made this choice, right? So there's, so I still have contact with them, but it's because of that culture, that kind of those whisper campaigns, kind of quiet judgment, I would say it's, it has to be arm's length. Does that make sense? Okay. Absolute,
0: absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And
1: it, yeah. you know,
0: which is slightly better than you know, um, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who in turn are slightly better than Scientology. Um, right? Is there the sense, you know, I mean, with the Jehovah's Witnesses, there's the sense that the devil is involved in some way in this. Do Do Mormons believe that people who've left because they've come under the influence of the devil?
1: I I think so. Yeah, and and again, it's because of the kind of whisper campaign. You don't hear like this person has, you know, been pulled away by the devil, but it's. It is, you know, there are dark forces in this world. It's it's believed, and yeah, it's why else would you leave the one the one true church? Because truly, Mormonism is the only way to get to heaven, right? So, why would you leave otherwise?
0: And and it's the only way to get to one of three levels of heaven. I just heard. So yes, yes. You perhaps tell us about those three levels of heaven, because I want the best one. I want the five star one. You know,
1: me too. Me too. Definitely. I um. I wish I could tell you more about that. Yeah, they all confuse yeah. me so much. And the things, here's what here's what I do know. The things that you have to do in order to get to one of those top two levels um, include going to the Mormon temple, um, performing the ceremonies in that Mormon temple um, that are called endowments, and living that life so that you can do that having your family i think you can still go to the top tier if everyone in your family doesn't but i mean you've got to be nearly perfect to mm. get there like you really and and so there are there are four things i think that mormons that i've identified that mormons really have to do in order to get to either of those top two i think the bottom one i might be okay you might be you might be okay. we might be I okay
2: we'll make that <laughs>
1: yeah we might be okay to get the bottom one I'm not sure about that after this conversation but um (laughs) (laughs) um, so but there are the top two I think there are four things really that need to be done you need to be baptized Mormon I was baptized Mormon so you might need to work on that one yeah um yeah uh the endowments you need to take Um, you need to get married in the temple. And the second part of baptism is just the confirmation. So a blessing afterwards.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, so, you know, and for those of us who don't do that when we're alive, we can have our names put onto a list and, um, the youth of the Mormon church. I, I did this as a teenager. Um, they have the teenagers go in and do baptisms for the dead. So Mm -hmm. If you, you know, if you live your life and you don't learn about Mormonism, you can still make it to one of those upper levels if somebody gets baptized for you. Um, And you can even get to the higher levels if somebody does endowments for you. So the adults will go back to the temple on a regular basis and do, you know, these ceremonies, the endowment ceremonies for the dead as well. So. Yeah.
0: And do Mormons believe in that? I'm sorry.
1: I said all is not lost. All so not lost. <laughs> yeah. the
0: Mormons believe in hell.
1: Do you know what? It's they may. So this is another thing that if it, it's not talked about a lot, it's really focused on let's go to one of the higher kingdoms. And so it's not it's not the kind of fire and brimstone stuff that you hear in some other religions. It's hmm. really not focused on. So Fair. Well, yeah. I, that,
0: I'm, I, this is sounding very attractive to me. No, right. And and can you hang out with people in the other heavens, or are you just in yours? You know? that's no, that's the
1: that's the key. That's the key. Yeah, you you've got to stay in your own. Yeah. That's the separation. That's why you have to really make that effort to get up there.
0: Mm. Yeah. I mean, as you say, you you just never caught the belief. It 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 didn't happen, and it's interested me that that's true for so many second generation. Uh, members that that they just it's like what you know so perhaps about half of um scientologists who, who've grown up as children through it will leave and they'll leave you know sort of they get to be 16 or so and they'll say i don't want to do this anymore can't do this um, um it is interesting that the mindset has to be created and that once something shakes that uh, seriously and that's usually a problem with the leadership or, or with the teachings
2: mm. that mm.
0: some of the many contradictions that that tend to exist in such groups shine through and and it it's you're able to walk away of course um you know my friend steve hassan uh, and and many others have long talked about uh it, the induction of, of guilt and of phobia I, i've generally also add to that aversion that there are these three things that that are used to manipulate people.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: to what extent, as a, as a child growing up in in the Mormon Church,
1: are,
0: do, are you exposed to 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 those things? Phobia, guilt, and aversion.
1: Um, a, to a huge extent. Oh, wow. absolutely. Um, you know the phobias, not making it to heaven, not being with your family, not you know it's it. There, there are dangers out there in the world, right? And the othering, too. That's that's part of it. Like we can't, we mm. can't be like them. The cost is too high. You can't drink coffee. The cost is too high. You, mm. you know what I mean? So it has become uh,
0: expensive coffee over the years. You know,
1: so. <laughs> right? Right. Well, way more expensive for Mormons than for the yeah. rest of the rest yeah. of you lot. But <laughs> it's like,
0: like, it cost me two pounds for a cup, but a Mormon would. <laughs> would be damned to the lowest form of heaven as it right 2, two it. pounds
1: in heaven that's what it costs <laughs> so <laughs> yeah yeah um so there there is uh i think that that's super crafty in in mm. a lot of these high demand religions mormonism included mm. um you know whether or not they they f- go as far as to be you know a cult is up for debate, I suppose. I look at um, your friend Steven's, you know, the, the bite model, and every every piece of that I can identify in the Mormon religion. And I think, well, okay, what what do we do with that? <laughs> you know? I think what's more important for me, and especially in my work, is is has it been harmful? Is it harmful to you? Absolutely, and. Yeah. Yeah. So if this if this there are some things um, that I learned growing up in that church that I I love, I love to focus on family and supporting mm-hmm. each other. Now, the execution in that um, religion is a little bit different <laughs> than what I than the things that I find super helpful and attractive. And that is, you know, let's be supportive and let's be together as long as you follow all of these rules. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't then then that's all taken away even mm. even you know to a lesser degree than the shunning that that some other um groups do but mm.
0: um I, I mean I, I was in uh, I was in St. Petersburg a few years ago which was great um not really recommending it at the moment
1: not right now yeah not not but so much
0: remarkable place and and uh I met a, a man he was 35 years old and he'd been a member of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and he'd left, and he told me that his parents wouldn't talk to him. And, you know, I've, I've been around this kind of thing for 40 years now since I left Scientology. I've, I've met thousands of people who've been involved in all sorts of things. But it really hit home. As a parent, I have four children. The thought that, that anybody or anything could persuade me not to unconditionally love and support my children that's wrong. It, it's yeah. plain and simply wrong. You know, okay. even if my children are naughty, and they are, um, and, and <laughs> do things that I don't approve of, and they're all adults now as well, so it, you know, there's no excuse for it. But you know, I I have often said that you know, if as long as they tell me, I will help them bury the bodies. You know, the, yes, the the commitment to our children should be supreme, and so anything that interferes with that worries me tremendously.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, yes
0: we came to the word cult the c word as some people call it um i for a long time advocated its use because it's not a pejorative term uh it Mm -hmm. means a dedication to a a person or a doctrine and so christianity could be called the jesus cult without any insult being there um -hmm. sometime in the 1970s a variety of social scientists picked up on a, the idea that this was a pejorative term and the media didn't help, <laughs> you know. So it now doesn't mean what As it means. As it
1: literally does, yeah. Mm. <laughs> media never helps with anything. But... <laughs> oh, well, it is
0: it, it is sensationalism, isn't it? But, but I, exactly what you say, so many people come to me and they'll describe, um, you know, a friend, a family member has become involved in this group. Is it a cult? and i say is it harmful uh, has it. something bad happened because whether it's a cult or not doesn't matter to me what does matter is are the views in the group extreme um, mm. are the group is the group hateful towards other people particularly former members and mm-hmm. in most essential is the group authoritarian does it tell you what to do and and you have to do it or else. Are you allowed to ask questions? Are you allowed to doubt?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: when we cross those lines, and especially when we come to the point of shunning, or disconnection, as it's called in Scientology, I think we are dealing with um what what my friend Kristen Schirko would call an extreme authoritarian sect. And um, you know, this has been thoroughly confused by Um, historians of religion and um, social scientists who introduced this term, new religious movements. And Mm. the author, I have an interview with the author of the book, New Religious Movements, Professor Eileen Barker, which I put up a few weeks ago. And she now says, I don't use that expression anymore, which I'm pleased to hear because what's wrong with calling these things belief systems? You
1: know? Yeah. Yeah, when you have a forced belief system, or a coerced belief system. I think that's the issue right there, right? Yeah. It's
0: and whether it's new, yeah. whether it's religious, and and they, these scholars will list groups like Earhart Seminar Training, um, the Forum Landmark Trust, Lifespring, those kind of groups, and multi-level marketing groups as religions, their new religious movements, and it, it, it seems unscholarly in the extreme to me and and unnecessary and it's created polarization where there are um, pro-cult apologists some of them scholars some of them not who they they have this polarized view that that there's just it's black and white uh, there's no such thing as brainwashing that's a commonplace, and it's like well why are you using the word brainwashing so one of my questions One of my questions to um, Professor Barker was, what did she think about influence? And I wanted to see what she would say in the UK in 2015, we introduced a a law um, about coercive control, and it it only as yet applies to intimate relationships, but people have been prosecuted under this law for, Mm -hmm. not for their physical violence towards their partner, but the psychological control they have over them. And I was very interested by Professor Barker's response. She's a professor of sociology. She's Emerita now from London School of Economics and and very well known. And she said, talking of influence, that would be a matter for a psychiatrist. And it it seemed to me, how can you study, as she has a group like the Moonies, for decades and not say that there is influence involved? It'd be like saying, why do you teach at a university if you don't think that education influences people? You know, what's the point of giving information to people that doesn't influence them? And is there a spectrum of influence where that influence becomes coercive? And I think there rather obviously is. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, scholars who are seeking to dodge this question, package everything up as brainwashing and believing that members of, of these extreme authoritarian sets are zombies that somebody is suggesting that all free will is taken away from them. Uh, mm-hmm. Yost Mayalu in the 1950s wrote about menticide, the killing of the brain. And uh, I don't think that, you know, I've not seen that happen other than by a, yeah. a blow to the head, possibly. But,
2: <laughs> right.
0: you know, there there is always the individual there, there is always the responsibility that the individual should take, I, I I believe. And so I haven't yet met any zombies um i tend to reserve the term brainwashing for the people who first used it the chinese the, the phrase xinao meaning wash brain literally um that they have the right to say that that's what's happened in the so called reeducation camps and mm-hmm. similar processes are very much occurring within um authoritarian groups at different levels um so for example Um, the notion of the hot seat, which we find in in many groups now, where the individual is put on a chair and everybody in the group shouts abuse at them and accuses them of things. This comes straight from the Chinese thought reform camps and Mm. is presumably has been practiced in in Xinjiang on the million people put into those Oh, my gosh. Um, So, yeah, the whole cults, all of that debate, rather than sort of I I have this feeling that there are some social scientists who, had they walked around Auschwitz, would have commented on the quality of the pyjamas. You know, they they, they do have nice pyjamas, at least, you know. (laughs) Um, Without focusing on, there are things that that are um, proper and humane ways of treating people, and that there are things which are dictatorial, tyrannical, and authoritarian, and I fear that our society is still on that end of the scale even in the democracies authoritarianism is, is, is a strong force we see it at its extreme in these these groups
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, so you are a, a trauma recovery therapist is that that the right sort of area that you're working in you, you work you help people to recover from trauma
1: yeah, I do, but I'm not a therapist. Um, okay. I'm, I'm a coach. Yeah, I, t- I I chose the coaching route for a few reasons, um, some of them specific, I guess, maybe to the U.S. Um, and others just with the modality of trauma recovery. So I knew, you know, after coming through some traumatic experiences of my own and realizing, Um, really learning what trauma is, first of all, what emotional trauma is, and how you can you can actually heal from it. Like at at one point in the process, I thought, oh my gosh, my it's never, I'm never going to be the same, right? And so realizing that there is treatment, that there are ways to heal, and that I can actually help people. I I was a coach already, a business coach. So I've already worked kind of in that coaching modality, mm-hmm. but with education around trauma, I have really been able to connect with a lot of trauma, um, people experiencing trauma, and I've been able to help them through it. Um, so I became certified as a trauma recovery coach. The the other thing in the U.S., um, therapists are limited to um by state lines. And there are some licenses that you can get that cover multiple states and things like that, but there are always limitations. And mm-hmm. I didn't want those specific limitations. Um, the other thing with therapy versus coaching is um, therapy is beautiful in many ways, especially with mental illnesses. There's a, there's a need in therapy for a, a little bit of a separation. I'm the therapist. I'm you know, a doctor or almost like a doctor. Right. And I'm going to help you through this experience, but with coaching, I'm able to connect on a more personal level. I'm able Mm. to share my own experiences, which is super important with trauma recovery. Um, you know, you're not alone in this. Here's what my experience was. Here's what worked for me. Here's what's worked for other people. Let's try some of these things with you. Um, one thing that trauma does specifically is really isolates people right in, in their own minds. It's like, I, there's shame involved with it a lot of times and, and it, the, the, there's a a natural reaction during, during a traumatic experience to just isolate and be on your own. A lot of people are experiencing that after COVID a lot mm-hmm. of people, they're not realizing that this could be a trauma response for them. And mm-hmm. it's like, Nope, I just don't want to be with anyone else. So having somebody who you can connect with and trust and share experiences and be kind of on the same level with is super healing. So, mm. and that's, that's harder to do as a therapist than as a coach.
0: Mm. So it's a very important distinction. And I'm, you know, I'm, mm. I'm glad to have it explained.
2: Yeah.
0: I, I know in the U S as you say, you have the crossing a state line and not having a license, yeah. uh, which is weird. Um,
1: Right? I think so, too.
0: <laughs> but, you know, it works in Massachusetts, but you can't do it in Vermont. Um, yeah.
1: yeah. OK.
0: Um, but also, there's this, you know, you have to have a master's degree to call yourself a counsellor and, and this kind of thing. And I must say, and I'm going to say, because I'm well known for this kind of thing, I suppose, by now, and I'm old enough to to be doing <laughs> this, that, that I've actually seen far more former members of authoritarian groups messed up by therapists and helped by therapists. And I think what you were talking about actually goes to the heart of the matter, that having an external authority who is going to apply a system to you when you have just come out of a group where an external authority applies a system to you and not having that, um, you know, it's a, you can be more in a peer to peer relationship and I've, You know, I've always found that, you know, I've come away from the whole concept of counselling and I, you know, dip my head into all sorts of kind of, of course, nine years in Scientology. You know, Scientology was praised by Fritz Perls um, and by Carl Rogers.
2: Mm. Uh, To My Mm -hmm.
0: amazement. I don't think they really looked very deeply into it. I think Fritz Perls may have grabbed a couple of ideas from Hubbard personally um, with his, his gestalt therapy. And and that authority relationship is fundamental to cultic relationship. So coming along and saying it's like with bereavement counsellors or or relationship counsellors, and we use the word counsellor in in this country without Mm -hmm. fear of being sued um, or put in prison. Um, (laughs) But very often the really effective people are people who've had the experience and can share their experience and the first really important thing is to say and i got past it you know
1: and i got past it right Right. you know
0: it's still going to be there you know if you if you you've lost somebody you love there will still be that that sense of loss for the rest of your life Mm -hmm. but it can be something that's manageable it can be something that's integrated in my own case um when my mother died and I looked after her for the last years of her life, she was 94 when she died.
2: Aww.
0: That uh, when I think about her, uh, there is a slight wistful sense, but, but she'd made it very clear that she'd had enough, you know, and she'd said that she didn't want to go to heaven and she didn't want to reincarnate. She was done. And um,
1: if I can put in my wishes, please let it be that. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm.
0: And, and so, uh, you know, it, it pleases me to think of her. I can look back. It doesn't, you know, I don't I'm not desolate. I'm not yeah. yeah. So it's integrating the experience, digesting the experience, and finding that that you can do that. Um yeah. how long ago did, did you start working with this?
1: Yeah, if um if I can go back just yeah, please do, to yeah. the therapy versus coaching
2: hmm.
1: um conversation too, I I, I want to add a couple of things there, and and that is. Um, the first like big trauma in my life that brought me to my knees i I did seek therapy for that i actually and i and I mentioned that therapist in my book um mm. because she saved my life mm. and she i mean it was therapy there was that division she didn't have the experience that I had although she's mm. she's had some life experience around um what I went through at the time um but I think there are therapists out there who can navigate those the laws and the way you do mm. things. There is a therapist in the US, Rachel Bernstein, who is Rachel's amazing.
0: fantastic. I, I know, Rachel. Yes. And
1: one of the things that she does, though, is she throws out that I'm going to maintain separate. And she talks about, uh, you know, she she actually purposefully connects with her clients as well, which mm. is, you know, not typically what therapists are taught to do. But in this case, that she does that on purpose. She talks mm. about doing that on purpose. And mm. so I think that the right therapist, just like the right coach, can really, really help mm. and should be sought, but with with care, both both modalities with mm. some care and thought, like, what, what do I want to look for here? I think the person is more important than the degree. Um, yeah. Yeah,
0: and you've got to feel right with that person, and yes. I, you know, I, I agree absolutely with what you're saying with Rachel. One of the advantages is that Rachel very thoroughly understands cultic involvement,
2: yes. And yes. if you don't,
0: very and you try and use the cookie cutter approach,
2: mm-hmm. then
0: you know, disaster can in, ensue. And exactly, I, I have a friend who's a clinical psychologist and she did a master's degree, and she, you know, 30 years ago or whatever. 25 years ago. And she says that uh, she wishes she'd done her degree and master's degree in social psychology because Mm -hmm. what she found out about counseling by doing it, and that all of the various and many schools and systems that were given to her, it is, as you say, about making a connection with a person and allowing them to develop, allowing them, helping them to, you know, you're a catalyst for for something you are not going to go in there and tinker with the works and get them to do (laughs) it and sometimes you know looking at say rollo may's existential therapy where you know the fascinating and brilliant man but but the idea is your worldview is wrong my worldview is right i'm going to teach you my worldview it's existential you know and and i'm kind of i'm not really very interested in that when somebody comes i'm not really Directly involved with many people anymore. I'm theoretically retired, but when somebody came to me, the thought would be, and it so often happened that, that after, you know after a couple of meetings they'd be asking me what I believed. They'd want mm-hmm. to know, you know, if they could follow Are me in some way, the yeah.
2: transference
0: oh. or what have yes. you, and to be able to say, I'm here to help you work your way through it and come to a point where you're in charge of you you know, I don't want to be in charge of you. Thank you. I have children.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm involved with several um, groups of people who are, are coming out of various kind of higher high demand religions. And I'll, I'll see posts on social media. What do we believe about this? And it's, it's just so common, right? This is where we're coming from. We need to believe something. What do we believe? And so that is a very, very, difficult transition hmm. to, oh, I actually can believe this for myself. I can develop my own ideologies. Like I can pick, you know, from from different mindsets and evolve it to my own and it's okay. So it's a, it's a big deal. It's a and big it's deal.
0: The, the commonplace uh, that um, I think Margaret Singer uh, in Cults in Our Midst talks about um, you know somebody's come out of a group and you go to a restaurant and they get the menu and they say what what would I like
2: yes uh, um, yeah
0: getting yeah. somebody to to the point where their own choice and their own individuality is essential their you know their own voice their own expression is essential um yeah and you know and we we have critical thinking and all of that good stuff but um okay. So so how long ago did, did did you come to to this work?
1: That's right. You asked that a long time ago. So I sorry did, but about you that. needed
0: to comment on something yeah. that's already been said. So that's good. That's <laughs> yes.
1: Good. Yeah, so um it has been I wanna say my first trauma really happened back in the 20 teens. And not so not super long ago, um, but that's where my education started, and I've probably spent maybe the last several years um, coaching those who, and and I kind of I started in the prison world because my you know my experience had been as a family member of somebody who was incarcerated. Okay. Um, so a lot of those people come to me just naturally because I speak a lot in that world yeah. and I spend a lot of time in that world with those yeah. with with people who are treated like criminals because they are related to someone who committed a crime um but the as time has gone on more people leaving specifically Mormonism but other religions high demand religions as well um have started saying and I you know what you say resonates with me too and so I have focused more, more in the last couple of years about on, um, you know, in that area, in this area as well. And it's some of the similarities are surprising um, yeah. that prison families go through and families, um, you know, people leaving high demand religions or having family members in um, these coercive control groups, too. So it's it's a little bit strange there that The the worldview questions, the existential questions that happen um, as you are unwinding yourself from a a high demand group or a coercive group is similar to what happens when you realize, oh my gosh, normal people get arrested and they're not like less than. So um, anyway, some similarities there. So it's been a few years, um, only a few years, that I have been working in this field.
0: Mm I, I, the expression "treated like criminals," I, I latch onto be, because I don't think anybody should be treated like a criminal. Yeah. I, I think that that part of the problem in our society is that negative behavior, and and it it shocks and amazes me that the mm-hmm. prison system has become so damaging, so so that it. Is often become simply a hothouse to train people in criminality and to make them more resentful uh, and and less concerned. And, and there is good work to suggest that treating people in a compassionate way is helpful, which is not to, you know, if somebody's done something seriously damaging, then I do believe they should be restrained. But I don't believe they should be punished. I don't see any virtue in causing pain to people i don't think it will make them improve and where we can we should rehabilitate people um, so you know as just a side note on you know yeah. the, how how we treat people i think we should treat people in a kind and compassionate fashion but look to the good of society so if if we need to separate somebody from society we should do that
1: yes yeah i i agree with that as well and i do think you know i, I remember thinking when I was in the thick of it, I thought, you know if we wanted to come up with a system that would create a violent person out of a kind mild person, we could not have come up with a better system mm-hmm. we just we just couldn't have come up with it. so it's it's evolved into that it's here's where we are. there are a million things that need to be done, especially in the u s but around the world as well but mm-hmm. The U.S. is particularly um, egregious in, in this area. It's, yeah. Yeah, I mean,
0: there, there are more people per head of population incarcerated in the U.S. than in any other country in the world. I mean, mm-hmm. the conditions are not as bad as Russian prisons uh, or Chinese uh. prisons, but in, in comparison with, say, Western Europe, um, they are among the worst prisons yeah. there are that, that in mm-hmm. fact in scandinavia um where you have a fairly strict system the the prisons do look at people as human beings uh, mm-hmm. with rights and i think it, it, there's a case and i've talked about this before there, there was a reform school for adolescents children and adolescents called pepper harrow and a documentary was made about it um that's pepper with one p pepper harrow um documentary was made I think in 1973 and they then did a follow-up with kids who'd been there and um, they'd focused on six kids um, one had died in the interim mm-hmm. one didn't want to be interviewed but the other four were all interviewed and my jaw dropped it saw this documentary many years ago um, because you've got an eight-year-old child walking around smoking a cigarette and you're all of these oh, long-haired gosh. people looking after them it's like oh dear you know hippy dippy or what but their reoffence rate was oh. ten percent. Two years. The reoffence rate by the time the documentary was made, uh, somewhere around 1990, was eighty percent, because of a policy called the short sharp shock, brought in under Margaret Thatcher by a man called William Whitelaw, which of course is a quotation from Gilbert and Sullivan's Mikado, uh, short sharp shock being actually execution with an axe. But oh my he, gosh. Their idea was, you know, so he thought it was funny quoting this phrase, but their idea was that you would brutalize kids, like the boot camps that that people send their kids to in the US. And that in some way would have a positive effect on society. And it it does seem that there are these two extremes. There are people who believe that we're fundamentally evil. There are people who believe that we're fundamentally good. Martin Mm -hmm. Buber, when interviewed by Carl Rogers, Carl Rogers said, I, I think you would agree with me, Martin, that man is basically good. And Martin Buber, I think, rather sensibly said, yes, man is basically good and evil. Mm. I, I take that mid-position. So the idea yes. that you know, people are evil, so you have to brutalise them, or the idea that they're good, so you, you don't need to do anything, they'll work it out themselves. The, these are false assumptions, but mm-hmm. they're profound. And I think many people are taken up with, revenge and wanting to get their own back and this is as a society we have to realize that that is of itself a disorder of course you know if if somebody hurt one of my children i'd probably kill them but i don't believe in punishment You know. yeah yeah I i hear
1: you i hear you i think what comes up for me when you when you tell that story you know people are mostly good and evil is and what comes up for me is you know with that knowledge, with that insight, where do we want to shine the light on people? Where what do we want to encourage, and what do we want to bring out and expose more? Yeah. And that that to me makes the most sense. What do you want to see? Because that's where you need to focus your attention. Cool. And um, our prison systems don't do that. Our prison I, systems. But you know, to tie in a little bit, I was having a conversation with a, a gentleman recently who. Um, has a lot of experience with Jehovah's Witnesses and the shunning, and the comparison was made between um, a, a, a child being taken away from a parent and incarcerated, and the Jehovah's Witnesses practice of parents having to shun their shun their children, and adult children or or um, minors, either one, and how absolutely horrific and painful that is. And how um, complete a comparison that is. I just think, you know, in one in one case, the state or the government is taking someone physically away and putting them physically behind bars or walls or whatever it may be, and causing a physical separation. With shunning, it's it's, its an emotional psychological separation, even if they're near you. It, Equally as damaging on both parts, equally as damaging you know in, in the whole, and just just an awful mm. awful practice you know when when it's avoidable, like you say, if somebody's actually causing danger in a community, we do need to protect our community but um yeah this this separation and isolation is so unnatural mm. and damaging it's awful
0: yeah, it's awful and, and I mean there is there is good work that shows that ostracism is traumatizing and if, if we look into the work you're doing that um by traumatizing people in prison you are not going to improve them they're not going to get better they're going to get more devious more cunning more skillful more manipulative um and, yeah. and, taken but, all sorts and then-
1: Oh I'm sorry I talked over you. Um I'm, I'm 90 to 95% of people who are in prisons being treated like that being being psychologically damaged traumatized are coming back to our communities. Mm. You know so we thinking about that it's like for those who don't care about those people at least care about your own community and your own self you know can can we look at that because they are, are coming back.
0: Mm. And, and it's yeah. created enormous problems, most of the gang culture in the US, you know, and my interest, you know, as you were saying before, that, that it, it it's interesting to see that the same dynamics apply in all human groups. Mm-hmm. And so I, in the 1990s, became very interested in terrorism as a subject and looked at what is now being called radicalization and how that was was performed. And found that I mean that Al Qaeda actually published a, a manual which I uh, have in in my book o- Opening Our Minds, which is very similar to the Moonies recruiting manual. Um, and oh, you're dealing with the same psychological aspects. And so if you um, if you treat people well, you you might have a good outcome. If you treat people badly, you will have a bad outcome. And as you say. Those people will come out into society cynical and and self-interested. In fact, one could say that the prisons are largely a, a training ground for psychopaths, a way of making people um, mm-hmm. less uh, compassionate, less empathetic towards others and more self-involved, because they have to look out for themselves in that environment. They have to all the time be watching out for themselves. And mm-hmm. um, this is not good. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's get to the, the, the what should have been the topic of this conversation, uh, <laughs> which is you have a new book out, yes?
1: I do, I do. Um I it, it's actually the day that we're recording today is launch day for my book. Okay. Actually, yeah. So by the time people see this, it will be available um Amazon and Barnes and Noble initially. Um other places as well, but those are the two initial um, places mm. that it's available online. Uh, the book's title is "Trauma Recovery: A Ninety-Day Guidebook to Building a Great Life After Trauma," mm. um, and it is it's a it's a planner slash narrative about um, trauma and how to recover. Loaded, loaded with exercises that are available and helpful for people who are going through traumatic experiences to to help bring them out. Of those experiences, so ninety days—that is not anywhere near a guarantee that in ninety days you're going to feel better or be completely healed from trauma. But it's going to put you on a path to healing that um, is similar to the path that I took, and that many, many others have taken with um, you know with the exercises that help at different stages of trauma recovery. So, yeah, oh, excited. Oh. I'm hoping that is is helpful for a lot of people.
0: Yes, I, I I imagine it will be. Um, okay, well, uh, this has been this has been great, and um, you know, let's get together sometime in in the future, and you can tell me how immensely successful the book has been.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely, I would love that,
0: and uh, we can you know probably a little deeper. So, thank you very very much. It, this has been great.
1: Thanks, John. I really appreciate the conversation. Pleasure.
0: Yeah. And I think I mispronounced your name at the start. It's Jolene.
1: It's Jolene. I thought that you, I don't think that you did. Maybe I you think did. I got close I... to
0: Jolene because of oh. the country song. You know?
1: yeah, that's oh, people do that. It's yeah. I didn't even notice for that for that reason, because it's yeah.
0: <laughs> so. I had an American friend uh, called Vaughn Young and um, he called me John and I called him Vaughn. And I then it took a couple of years. I realised you had to invert these. That his name was Vaughn, and my name is John. <laughs> so,
1: yes, uh, <laughs> yes. So John, more of a more of a fuller O.
0: Yes. Well, it, well, it, it's uh, yeah, it's John. it's it, my birth name is Jonathan. So mm, okay, um, it's just gotcha. you know, I, we couldn't I couldn't afford the H, so I'm just J-O-N. <laughs> right. Um, um,
1: it's a good name. Very yeah, good. I like
0: it. It's it's done me well, but it's quite surprising to find that there are actually at least two other people in the world who are called <laughs> John Atak, spells both names the same, and wow. I, I would like to apologise to them because they have no doubt been at some point harassed by Scientology. You know, exactly. One is <laughs> a sound engineer from Oregon who I think was working in Paris, and the other is a chemist. And I academia dot edu, keeps sending me these things saying how many thousands of mentions my papers have had. And I think it's this other guy.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's hilarious. Oh, that's so funny. Well, I sat next to a woman and had a pleasant several hour conversation on a plane once. And she asked me when the plane was landing, hey, I'd like to stay in touch with you. Can we exchange numbers? And her name was Jolynn Armstrong. And I'm like, no. (laughs) We just... So we're we're best friends. <laughs> so yeah.
0: I did have a guy knock on my door once many years ago. I right? um was living in Stafford in England. And uh, there was this old guy in his eighties and he said, My name's John Atak. He was J O H N having said that. And yeah. um, we, we, but he, he, he was tired of getting phone calls, which were actually meant for me.
1: People looking for help with their cult experience. <laughs> well, no,
0: you see, at this time I was still involved in Scientology. So, you know, oh. who knows? But um, yeah. you know, such, it, such it is. Anyway, it's been a great pleasure and um, yes. we will meet again.
1: Okay. Thanks, John. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps, and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. Or you can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.